I'm a realist and I know, you know, we're not going to build a category in a year. This can take many years. I was talking the other day to Sangram Vadre, who founded Terminus. And, you know, he was like, it's been seven years since we started Terminus. And this is a long-term play. But in the short term, the race is to really, goes back to what I started with, to win the hearts and the minds of the audience. Because that's truly the company that will emerge or the brand that will emerge as the category leader is the one that really emotionally creates that relationship with the audience. And so that's what I'm most focused on right now. Like, I don't honestly care if in the next 12 months, somebody uses our category term to describe us. Would it be great? Yes. What I care about is that people are talking about us in the communities that they're in and that they're talking about us because they love us and because we're helping them and adding value and being a contributor to the community. If you're looking to up your startup marketing game, you're in the right place. This podcast will help you simplify, prioritize, and see big wins from your marketing efforts. Every week, you'll hear from some of the world's best venture-backed startup founders, marketing leaders, and startup experts about marketing, brand, growth, what's working well, challenges, and how crazy and fun marketing can be when you're at a high-growth startup. See ya inside. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the show. Great to have you here. On the episode today, I have Kathleen Booth here with me. She is the SVP of marketing at Tradeswell. Prior to Tradeswell, she was CMO at Clean.io, a Series A startup. She's also the host of the Inbound Success Podcast. You guys can check it out. And she's a board-level advisor to several tech startups. So happy to have you here with me today. Thank you for coming on, Kathleen. I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Anna. Yes, it's so good to take our LinkedIn relationship and bring it to the in-person, right? Because as I was mentioning before we started recording is I see you almost every day on LinkedIn, but I have not seen you in person or talked to you in person. So I'm very excited. True story. Yeah. Yes. So, okay, before we jump into our conversation and different topics and questions, let's talk about Tradeswell real quick. So Tradeswell was founded in 2019, is based out of Baltimore in Maryland, and has 38 people. So has grown fairly quickly, right? 2019 was just like a little bit away from where we are today. It was slightly before COVID. So it was at BC, like BC and AC. And we would... I love that so much. Is that how you refer to it, BC and AC? I'm going to start doing I that mean, too. I mean, I think we should. It's like a whole sea change in our lives, right? <laughs> it is a whole sea change. Yeah, yeah. On the funding side, Series A, so $18.8 million total. And to give a brief description, Tradeswell is the real-time operating system for e-commerce. So very much focused on e-commerce. It's a quantitative trading platform that uses real-time algorithms and AI insights to reveal and execute the optimal actions companies need to grow. And I guess like a simpler way to explain it is it's like a mission control for growing your e-commerce business. That is a great explanation. (laughs) And it's not from me. It's from you. (laughs) So thanks for putting that together. Great. So let's dive into the questions first. I don't want to talk about trades well first. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about some belief systems that you might have. I saw a post because I follow you on LinkedIn. I saw a post. You posted a few roles on your team about like a month ago. 
And you said, and I quote, these are opportunities to do marketing the way it should be done with a customer audience first approach focused on community, focused on great content and building a brand that people love, whether they buy from us or not. And so I wanted to ask you about that first. I wanted to hear, because I, I think that you're pretty passionate about this. Tell me more, like what has been your past experience with some maybe bad marketing practices, maybe not so good, right? And maybe some of the good ones. And how has that shaped you as a marketer? What have you learned? And what do you recommend? Sure. And I would say, I mean, there's tons of bad marketing out there. There's no doubt about it. And I think we've all seen it. It's the marketing that's spammy and super self-promotional. But then there's like good marketing, you know, and I think the way we were all taught to market, which is like you have a product, you have an audience, you get develop a full funnel strategy. I just don't think that that's working as well anymore. And that's sort of what I meant in my post, because when I think about particularly the last few years with COVID, how I've experienced it, it's really changed the way I think about buying. And so when 10 years ago, when I owned my agency, you know, I was out there evangelizing this notion that when buyers need something, they go to Google and they look for an answer to their problem or solution. And does that still happen? Yes. But really, it's different. When buyers need something today, especially if you're talking about B2B, they're really not going to Google first. They're going to their peers and they're doing it through communities on Slack or through their LinkedIn network, which we talked about, or just, you know, in, even in person at people that they know and like and trust. They're saying, and I'll give you an example of me, like if, when I need, right now I'm looking at new project management platforms. I'm not Googling project management platforms. I'm going into my CMO communities online and saying, what are all of you using? What's worked well? What do you like? And I'm coming away with a list of like two or three provider names. And then I'm going to Google, but I'm not still Googling project management software. I'm going in and I'm typing in the names of those companies that my peers have, have given me. And I'm going straight to their websites. And I'm looking at them to see if the feature sets meet my needs and, and if what I see there validates what I heard. And if it does, then I'm calling them directly. And so it's really changed the way marketing is done because to truly succeed with marketing today, you have to win the hearts and the minds, not just of the buyer, but really of the people that they're talking to. And those people in many cases are not in a buying cycle. Like the people that I go out to and I say, what are you using or what have you used in the past? They've already bought. So the customers of the companies that I'm buying from, or they might just be people who haven't bought and who will never buy, but who say, gosh, I keep hearing about this company everywhere I go and I've heard it's great, right? And so they're expressing what they've heard as far as brand equity and quality of service and quality of product. They're sharing that in what's called dark social. And so to do marketing right today, you really need to think about going broader than your buyer, and really winning the peer set of your buyer so that you get at bats when those conversations happen. And to do that, you have to go beyond that traditional full funnel approach because that approach was designed for the buyer who has the need and the problem. These people don't have a need or a problem. It's already been solved. So how do you solve for them? That's really what, to me, what marketing today is all about. These people that are customers and they're expressing what they've heard, right? They're like, oh, this, have you heard of them? They're so great. And I see them everywhere. And, I, and they're remembering to mention that brand name and quality. And they're talking about it. They're customers. So it's like, we tend to forget about them when we 
think about our marketing strategy. You're right. It's mostly on like, how do we get more? How do we acquire more new versus what do we do with these people that already love us and use us, right? And I think that's what you're mentioning is that's part of that peer set. Yeah. And it's not just customers, honestly, because like I think about right now, again, in a Series A company, and we're not in a position, I'll give you an example, to purchase a direct mail, like gifting software solution, for example. Someday I would love to get one. But I will tell you that when I am in a position to do that, one of the companies that I'm going to call is Alice. And why am I going to call them? Because Nick Bennett is so active on LinkedIn and I've developed this amazing relationship with him and he's such a great guy. And he doesn't talk about Alice. I just know Nick Bennett. I know that's who he's with. And so if somebody asks me, who should I buy from? I'm going to say, I've heard great things about Alice. You should really check them out. Like, So it's customers, it's marketing to your own customers and turning them into evangelists, but it's also just building a community of people who love your brand beyond even your customer set, people who may never be in a position to buy from you and creating that reputational word of mouth. I love that. Yeah. You just mentioned some, and the fact that we mentioned Nick Bennett, that's great. He's going to love that. He's in this episode. <laughs> He's such a good guy. He's such a good guy. I, t- I agree with you. And I was going to mention that because you said so many good nuggets here, like there's the good kind of meh marketing way, right? And it's like you have a product and you have your audience and you do the full funnel strategy. And then there's like, how do we actually think about marketing today? And you kind of brought that back full circle. You mentioned dark social. What you mentioned works when you're talking about B2B buyers and how we don't do that Google search. We go to our peers, but I would still say that it's very important to like check that when you have, it might be B2B, it might be B2C, it might be DTC, it might be B2G. There's a lot of people out there and they talk and they search and they do things in, and they have some idiosyncratic ways. So always like check and talk to them, right? Because the thing that I would hate to happen is like people take away from this conversation or conversations that I see on LinkedIn is this is happening now for everyone. You just want to make sure that you check on that. And it's not like, this is how I do it. So it must be the way for everyone, right? Is that kind of how you think about it too? You raised a great point also, which is I use the example of B2B buyers, but it actually is happening with all kinds of buyers. So I'll give you some examples. Like in direct-to-consumer and B2C companies, absolutely this happens. It just might be different kinds of networks. You see it with neighborhood groups on Facebook. Like I'm in my neighborhood group and every day there's somebody saying, who's a good plumber? Who's a good electrician? You see it with conversations on Twitter around, oh my gosh, I just tried this new supplement or this new coffee brand. You know, people find their networks and their communities in different places. But the point is really that it's human nature. We would all so much rather reduce the risk of a purchase by buying from somebody who comes recommended than we would going in cold. There is a sense of, of risk and nervousness that is involved in purchasing from a person or a company that you really don't have a relationship with. And and it's, I guess it's even more acute with B2B because when you're an individual person buying from a company, so a business to consumer or direct to consumer business, when I'm buying, for example, a new cosmetic, if I buy a product that 
disappoints me, I'm the only one I have to answer to, right? It's my money. But when you're selling B2B, the person buying your product has to answer to their boss, to other people in the company, and it puts them at risk if they make a bad decision, which is why in B2B, it's even more pronounced because the level of risk involved in making the wrong purchase or the wrong purchasing choice is so much higher. And so that's why we turn to our, our trusted networks to be able to reduce the risk to us personally as business purchasers. Yeah, I love that. Before we dive into your marketing plan, I think you brought up another good point. And now again, like what is happening today? I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> like when you say go broader than your buyer, win over your peer set, how like in like generally, we don't have to go into specifics yet, but how do you actually do that? I mean, it's about looking at the audience as a whole person, right? So, you know, right now I am selling e-commerce software and I'm selling to like a head of marketing or a founder within an e-commerce brand. And really what we're selling has to do with like analytics and intelligence and insights and things like that. And I could create content that talks about that. But what are the things that have nothing to do with my product that buyer is affected by on the day-to-day? So for example, if it's the head of marketing at an e-commerce brand, is it like they're under-resourced, they don't have a lot of time? Is it they're overloaded with too many meetings? Is it that they have too much software? Whatever the problem is, it might not have anything to do with my product, but if I can start to create content around those other things, if I can start to have a point of view that resonates with them, or and maybe that point of view has something to do with what's happening in the industry. Like, for example, right now, the direct-to-consumer world is talking a lot about Web3 and NFTs. This has nothing to do with what I'm selling. But if I started creating content that educated my buyer about that. That's something that would really add value for them. There's a huge learning curve. There's a lot of talk, but you know, it's about being a resource and having opinions. And, you know, example of somebody who does this really well, and his name comes up all the time on my podcast is Chris Walker at Refine Labs. And he's somebody who has a strong point of view about how marketing should be done. Now, a lot of that does have to do with how he does marketing, but there are a ton of people out there who will never buy from him because they're the wrong fit, they can't afford it, or they don't have the right kind of product that he caters to because he's really has to do with B2B tech and enterprise sales. But they're still passionately recommending him. I'm here talking about him on this podcast and I'm not his ideal buyer. He's been on the podcast, so. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a strong point of view and he adds value and he teaches you something that you can use as a person, whether you're ever gonna be his buyer or not. So he's a great example of, of exactly this. And that's why he has such a huge following. Perfect. Okay. And just to close out on that, I just had a thought of like, if you're thinking that the way that people find you is through the blog post that you're posting, and then maybe they'll find you and like search for something on Google and land on your blog post and they'll read about it. And then they're like, oh, who is this company? And then they'll go to your website. That is not how it works today, right? I mean, from time to time, I'm sure it does work. But if that's what you are relying on to hit your marketing goals, you are going to be sorely disappointed. And to be clear, I still strongly believe in content. And this might be where Chris and I just sort of like diverge a little bit. I still strongly believe in SEO and in content. And I think it has a place in the buyer's journey. And there's a lot of data that shows that buyers who consume a lot of your content 
tend to be better qualified, tend to have higher average contract values. And that's because they're more educated. But a lot of that content gets consumed after they've already reached out to you and said, I'm interested. And so it, it's like, it's the opposite of what we think it's going to be. I think traditionally we were taught, oh, they'll read my blog, they'll attend my webinar, they'll subscribe to my newsletter, and then they'll fill out my, hey, I want a demo form. Really, where the value comes in is they, they talk to their peers somebody mentions your name, they go to your website, they fill out your I want a demo form, and then they start to consume your content. And then by the time they talk to your salesperson, they're super well educated. They really understand if you've done your job right with content. They really understand the product. They really understand the questions they should be asking. They understand why you're priced the way they are, why you are. And as a result of that, your sales cycle gets shorter and they're willing to actually like pay for the product and, and spend what they should spend. Yeah, I super think this is such an important topic and that's why I wanted to cover it first. And I thought that you are the perfect person to cover this topic with. So thank you, Kathleen, for giving your insights into that. Let's talk about Tradeswell. Let's talk about your marketing into 2022, your marketing plan. How do you think about budget? How are you thinking about budget? Let's start there first, I guess. And like marketing channels that you're leaning into, probably based on like the past, the few years that you've been, you know, doing marketing or that you've learned from previous folks doing marketing, right? And like, where are you going to prioritize your effort? Yeah. So I think with budgeting, there's two ways people look at it. And I have an opinion about which one I think is the right way. There's the people who look at budgeting and their company gives them a budget and then they spend it. And maybe that budget number comes from like, hey, we think we should spend 10% of revenue on marketing. And then there's the people who say, what do we need to accomplish this year? And how much is it going to cost me to accomplish it? And I would say I fall in the latter camp. And so it's important to start with the end in mind. What are your goals? How many new customers do you need to land? What's your revenue target? And then work backwards from there. And, you know, early stage, there's definitely some challenges to that because you don't always have the best data. And so you have to kind of take some guesses and make some educated assumptions about what conversion rates are going to be and sales cycles and things along those lines. But that's really where I start from and how I think about budgeting. And then kind of moving beyond that, like what's the mix of things that I do? I would say that I, like I said, I believe in content. And so the three roles that I hired were a content marketing manager, a director of product marketing, and a director of growth. And I'm definitely increasing the amount of content we're creating. I'm a big believer that brands should think like media companies. And so it's not just going to be blogs. Like we will be creating multiple podcasts. We'll be doing episodic content in other forms, whether it's video, audio, written. And we are actually going to be, this is a little bit of a letting the cat out of the bag early, but we're going to be launching a separate media property, actually, that's got its own brand. And it's really an audience development play. So that's going to be really exciting. We should be announcing that before the end of March. So stay tuned. But then outside of that, the headlines for me are around creating a community, going really niche and reaching our audience. One of the things that I'm really bullish on as far as a marketing kind of tactic or channel for this year is niche newsletter advertising. So there's newsletter advertising, and a lot of people think of that as like bigger newsletters, industry newsletters. I'm actually, because we're small and we don't have a huge budget, and because we're still working out our messaging, I'm investing in sponsoring some very niche like Substack newsletters by creators, because I find, at least my experience has been, they have very loyal followings. 
small audiences, but also then you don't have to spend much to sponsor them. And that's been really successful for me. We are doing some event sponsorships. And that's more about really kind of setting a certain tone for the brand than it is about lead gen. I mean, I do expect we'll get some great lead gen from the events, but you know, we're entering a new market this spring. And so we're making a big investment in one conference in particular that's well attended within that market. And we're going to have a big booth. And it's kind of like our coming out party. You know, perception is reality. And so I'm not historically somebody that spends a lot on conferences, but I think there's a time and a place for it. And so for us, that's a big play that we're doing this spring. So the media company, the event, the newsletter sponsorships, and then we have, you know, and the content and some other things kind of like scattered in between there. Wow. That sounds really fun and cool. And I can't wait to see what comes from this like coming out party and like this niche newsletter advertising. It's almost like, what do you even call this? Because it's like influencers sort of. Kind of. Right? It's like the creators, they have followings, but then it's also their newsletters because it's Substack, And that's fascinating. So would you be kind of placing ads in there? Would you kind of try to make it sort of like flow within the thread that they're already writing about? So how are you thinking about the ads within that niche newsletter? Yeah, I think of them very similarly to how I think about podcasts. And and by the way, I should say, in every company I've been in, also one of my things that I always do is I have a phenomenal podcast guest booking agent who, that is not how we got to do this podcast, but I do have somebody whose job it is to get me on podcasts. And in this case, it's like e-commerce podcasts that are specific to what we're selling. And then we also sponsor podcasts because I'm a big believer in podcasting as a medium. But when I think about that, and so this is similar to the Substacks, if I'm going to sponsor a podcast, I want a host read ad because the people listen to podcasts because they have a, a sense of trust in the host. And you want the host to be the one reading it because then that you get the halo effect of the relationship they have with the host and that conveys onto your brand. Similarly, with sponsoring a Substack newsletter, you want the writer to write about you. And like I'm working with two or three different creators right now who have newsletters and I've supplied them with a lot of background on here's who our audience is, here's what I think the benefits of our product are, here's some product screenshots. But I really want them to craft a story for me because the value in those types of newsletters is that people gravitate to them, again, because they know, like, and trust the person that writes it, but also they're attracted to the tone, the voice of the author. And so whatever you put, it's like native advertising. It needs to be in that person's voice and tone. Awesome. I think this is such a cool idea and I look forward to hearing more. Maybe you'll you'll talk about this and like the results from this on LinkedIn. So I'll watch for that. So you mentioned a ton of different awesome marketing plays. You did mention it, paid ads, I guess, but kind of from the lens of like, are you doing social media? Like you didn't mention any social media when you talked about your marketing channels, but I imagine that you are going to be using social yeah, great point. And we are, and one of the reasons I haven't mentioned it is because we're just getting ramped up for that. So my new team, I hired all three of those roles. They started last week. <laughs> so I've literally been in full-time hiring and onboarding mode. And now I feel like we're finally at the point where we can start to execute. So what I'm excited about is that every single person on my team, part of their job is going to be to be involved in the community. And when I say that, it's like, it's whatever works best for them. I'm not forcing anything on anybody. So I have one or two people who are really interested in getting active on LinkedIn. I have somebody else who wants to be active on Slack channels. 
you know, people who want to experiment with TikTok and Twitter. So we're all four of us are going to band together and kind of divide and conquer through our personal presence on these channels. Because I also really believe that you get so much more mileage out of personal involvement than out of corporate involvement. And then we will also be involved as a brand. We will have a brand presence from an organic social standpoint, but the bulk of our efforts are going to go into our personal posting. And so last week, I actually just did a training for every single person in the company on how to use LinkedIn. Um, Cool. Yeah, to try to like empower them if they're if they're interested in doing it. Again, nobody has to. I don't want to ram this down anyone's throat, but if they want to get more involved, I want them to know how to do it and do it well. And then also how we can all support each other. Like what is it when one person posts like, you know, let's all rally together and support that person and go and look at what they said. And if you have something to say, like it, comment on it, share it if it means something to you. So we're doing that. And then we're definitely going to be starting our social advertising in the next week. So all of this is getting ramped up right now. And I feel like we're like about to burst through the floodgates and have activity. But until now, it's been very quiet on our social channels because I just didn't want to do it and kind of not do it right. Yeah. Do you feel like you're at that prioritizing phase or it sounds like you're doing a lot of testing because you mentioned LinkedIn, you mentioned Slack and TikTok and Twitter and then the podcasting and then like video, audio, written content and event sponsorship in the conference and like social ads. And it's a lot. But is it because you're at that point right now where you're testing a bunch of stuff? It's a lot. And that is actually the greatest risk for us. And I've had a conversation with my team about this where we could easily get spread too thin and fall victim to shiny penny syndrome. It's a lot because right now we are Series A, and this is so typical of Series A. This particular stage in most companies' journeys, when you are in between Series A and Series B, it's where you're really trying to nail product market fit. You don't quite yet have it. And then you're also trying to figure out like what marketing activities are going to help you scale nobody generally at this stage knows the answers to these things. And so by necessity, we need to try different things to see what's going to start to resonate and then double down on those. And so in the next three to four months, I would expect to see us testing a lot of different things, but quickly eliminating certain things from the mix so that we can focus and go deep. Awesome. I love it. So much fun. Okay. We didn't talk about content marketing specifically. Like we talked about channels what kind of content? How are you inspiring? How are you engaging? How are you educating? Like, what are you trying to, what content are you putting out there that's going to hopefully resonate or has resonated with your target audience? Yeah. So I can tell you what we're not going to do, which is like, you know, 10 things you should know before you buy your next e-commerce software. Like we're not going to do that. There's so, the internet is littered with that sort of content. And I don't want to just throw another blog into the mix. And so the person who I hired to own content for us, I think we're very aligned. And especially, by the way, there's a ton of that kind of content in the e-commerce world, like which is what we're selling into. It's very cluttered. And so I want to be additive. And to do that, we have to do a couple of things. Number one, the content we create is going to shine the spotlight on our audience to make them the hero of the story. So expect to see podcasts and written content that is about the types of people that we sell to and profiling them and telling their story and sharing their career journeys and things like that. That's something I've had a lot of success with in the past. And it really helps to build relationships and community within an industry. Beyond that, because of the type of product we sell, we have a lot of data that nobody else has access to. And so we are definitely going to be creating 
content that spotlights our original data and research. You know, my goal is to make us like the e-marketer or the statista of the space that we're in so that people come to us every week to see like, what are they saying about what's happening with CAC on different advertising channels or profit on different, you know, e-commerce marketplaces. Like I want to be able to answer those questions with real data. I love it. And I did have a note here that you're doing your own original research. And I think that's one of the coolest things. If companies have this internal data, share it, right? Because it's valuable and it's differentiating. Not everybody has access to it. And I think when it was like COVID times and we weren't really trying to sell so much, we were very aware and sensitive to the fact that we shouldn't sell so much. We should just try to help. I think some companies, like they created their own microsites, they put together on those microsites, they put that original research, original data that can help their target audience without actually tying it back to their product. It's just like, here you go, this might help you. And that is all I'm going to offer, right? I mean, it's a huge opportunity. And we've already done some research. So actually, we did some external research last year where we surveyed 300 e-commerce leaders. And we've been releasing some of that data. And that's not only going to be released in content form, but it's the premise for some of the talks that we're going to give at conferences and things we'll talk about on podcasts and webinars. And so you can make that type of information really go pretty far. I love that. It's relevant everywhere that you show up, right? So that's really helpful. All right. So clearly you're doing a lot of cool stuff. All right, Kathleen, I get it. I get it. It's fun. It's exciting. You're doing a lot of cool stuff. What would you say are your top challenges right now? Oh my God. Staying focused. (laughs) I mean, seriously, I legitimately have said this. If I've said it once, I've said it 10 times to my new team. We have to be very focused. We have so much on our plates right now. No, I started January 3rd, and before I got to this company, they had committed to a marquee sponsorship for a very large industry conference where we have a 20 by 20 booth and a huge presence. And I have, you know, less than three months to do all of it with a team that just started two weeks ago. And so now I have, what, three and a half weeks left (laughs) to put it all together. It's a massive amount of work all at once. And so staying laser focused on just the things that are going to help us hit our OKRs for the quarter and make this event a success. That is the only thing we're doing. And I've told the whole company that. Like, if you come to me and ask for help on something that has nothing to do with these things, I will be saying no. And I think for many startup marketers, that's honestly the biggest challenge is saying no and not doing a lot of things that you could do. So I think it's that. And then the second thing, which is really not to be underestimated, is this notion of category creation. And I hate using that term because it is so overused and it sounds so pompous. When I first started looking into category creation, I spoke to somebody who had done it and they said, look, you know, there's people who want to create categories because they're in a category and they don't want to seem like they are, like they want to create a new path. And then there's times when you are selling something or marketing something and somebody says, what is it? And you really struggle to answer because there is no existing framework to describe it. And that's the situation we're in. And the person who I spoke with was like, that's when you really know whether you want to or not, you're doing category creation because you just... It's like when Airbnb first started. They didn't have a choice, right? It was different than anything that existed. And so that's kind of the situation we're in. And um, it's not that we don't have competitors. There's lots of other people who are cropping up, starting to do what we do, but there is no recognized way to describe it. And so somebody will emerge as the category leader, and that's the challenge that we have ahead of us. Not a small 
challenge. You know, you have to really come at that with everything you've got. And so I'm excited, but I'm also kind of gearing up for battle, if you will. It's going to be a big effort on the part of the whole team. When do you need to do this? Like your series A right now, you came on board, you're working all this marketing stuff, you're going to be sharing out a lot of messaging on podcasts, on social media, all that stuff. Like, are you also working on your narrative for this like new category? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, narrative, manifesto. But at the same time, to be clear, like, I'm a realist. And I know, you know, we're not going to build a category in a year. This can take many years. I was talking the other day to Sangram Vajray, who founded Terminus. And, you know, he was like, it's been seven years since we started Terminus. And this is a long term play. But in the short term, the race is to really goes back to what I started with, to win the hearts and the minds of the audience, because that's truly the company that will emerge or the brand that will emerge as the category leader is the one that really emotionally creates that relationship with the audience. And so that's what I'm most focused on right now. Like, I don't honestly care if in the next 12 months, somebody uses our category term to describe us. Would it be great? Yes. What I care about is that people are talking about us in the communities that they're in and that they're talking about us because they love us and because we're helping them and adding value and being a contributor to the community. Is mission control your category term? It's actually um, a real-time operating system for e-commerce. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And you'll see, like, it's funny, a lot of different news out there talking about the notion of an operating system. In fact, Metadata did a Series B and just had a big announcement that they're creating the category for the operating system for B2B marketers. So this notion of an operating system is starting to gain a lot of traction. Shopify is starting to talk about it. So that's kind of the space that we're playing in. It's just that it hasn't, it's not a term that's in wide use and there's no analysts creating magic quadrants for it or anything like that. So that's right. But that's a good thing. You don't want yeah. Gardner to be talking it because then it's like, then you're putting yourself into a category that already exists. Yes, exactly. Super cool. Okay. I'm going off script here, but I wanted to ask you, can you tell me more about how you, how the marketing team aligns with sales or how you've successfully done it in the past? Like, yeah. What are you making sure is in place? How do you think about marketing from the top of the funnel through to the middle, like drive revenue? How do you think about that and make sure you're aligned with sales? Well, I'll tell you what doesn't work and then kind of what we're doing. I have definitely worked places where that relationship was dysfunctional. And generally, the reason when that happens is that there's something structural in the way the company has set up the way it tracks revenue to pit marketing and sales against each other. And a great example of that is if you're tracking marketing sourced revenue and sales sourced revenue. By definition, when those are the words you use, it implies that if it's marketing sourced, it can't be sales sourced and vice versa. And so then you get into situations like marketing sponsors a trade show and sales comes as part of that. And sales works the show floor and generates leads and marketing runs the booth, and then you get back, and it's like, who gets to claim these deals? And you're fighting over it. And it shouldn't be. Like, the best marketing and sales organizations are so tightly knit together. They work together. And it's very rare that a prospect comes in purely through marketing or purely through sales, unless you're very product-led growth, which will have an element to us that is at some point. So my whole attitude is, I've told my team that they are never to use the term marketing sourced revenue or marketing sourced pipeline. That phrase is forbidden. We can say event sourced. We can say, you know, organic 
sourced. It's about the channel less than the team that developed it. And so we should be incented to support the sales team just as they should be incented to support us. And I'm very lucky here that I have a sales team that is just wonderful, so excited to work with us, really open to taking our advice, which is something that I find so refreshing because while I don't pretend to be a sales expert, I think there are things when it comes to like writing email subject lines and how you use video and your emails and all sorts of things like that, that we can help them with. And then there's a lot that they can teach us in terms of the feedback they're hearing from the market, what messaging is resonating versus what's not. That is a true partnership. And that's what I'm really working to build here. And that's also why one of the first hires I made was a director of product marketing, because that role really should be the glue that ties together product, customer success, and sales and bridges those teams with marketing so that they're all talking to each other and all on the same page. Well, thank you so much for sharing. That kind of came out of left field, but I am always interested in like those companies that do have nice alignment, do have those people that have experienced that really good alignment with marketing and sales, like what was important. So I thank you for laying that out. Okay. Tell me, please, if you have any creative marketing ideas, this is also something I like to ask folks because we're always kind of like intrigued. Like what are people, what are folks doing that are creative, some like innovative ideas? Maybe you have one or two really good ones that you or your team has come up with. And I know you mentioned a lot of different channels you're going to be on. You mentioned content you're going to be using, right? Can you talk through that? Yeah. I think that I kind of mentioned some of them already. So I do think that these niche, um, like Substack newsletter sponsorships, it's something I don't see a lot of brands doing. And I just like, I did it in my last job and I got such good results. Like I think I had one newsletter and the guy had, I want to say it was like, 1500 subscribers. It's a small list, but he had like a 60% open rate or something and a huge click-through rate because his content was so good. And everybody that subscribed loves everything he's creating. And it was like $200 an issue to sponsor his newsletter. I got a, a free trial request out of each one. And I'm like, if I only get one, that's fine. It was $200. Like, great. You know, and so that was a revelation to me. And that was a better cost per leader or cost per acquisition than the larger. I did also sponsor larger newsletters and the return just wasn't as good. And so that was, that to me was a big aha moment. And I've really doubled down on that here where I'm trying to figure out who's writing really great Substacks. And I say Substack, but substitute any newsletter platform, but niche creator newsletters that my audience is reading. And, and those are the people that I want to work with. Um, so that's one. The second one that I've used over and over and over is the podcast booking agent. You know, it's really reasonably priced. It's like under $1,000 a month and you get booked on four podcasts. Great, very reasonable cost. And, and even if you did it yourself, like the cost that you would pay somebody on your team to book you would cost more than that. And so that's been wonderful. And then, you know, the other thing I'm kind of excited about is that this big trade show we're doing, and this isn't something new, I think it will really produce results for us. We're hiring a photographer to be at our booth during the whole show for free, taking headshots for people. I just feel like that's something I've seen done before, but I think particularly now where we're all coming out of two years of having not left our house, I can only speak for myself and say, I look nothing like my old headshot. I just don't like my hair color is different. 
it's two years later, I'm older. So I love the idea of people coming, getting their updated headshot, having it at no cost to them. And, you know, great, we get their email address and their name. And they'll have to opt into hearing from us, but it's just a great way to get people to the booth, to start conversations, to give them something of value and hopefully be able to start a conversation with them. I love it. These are small things, but they make a really big, like you have to think through what's going to engage people to come to our booth. Like what's the strategic way we're going to get people to come to our booth. And not everyone does that. They're like, we're going to set up the table and people are going to love coming over. That's the field of dreams, right? Like if you build it, they will not necessarily come. That's right. Absolutely. You mentioned headshots. And I just have to say, because I love this company that just started, that they just started, it's called Heroic Headshots. And so you can actually do headshots. After this conference, obviously, that Kathleen will have and you go to it and do the headshot there, right? If you still need one, you can go to Heroic Headshots. I did mine there. All you need is your phone. You just need your phone. You need good lighting. Really? Yeah. And then they take care of it. It's all online. Oh, I'll have to check it out. Folks that are, yeah, folks that are interested. They're going to love that I mentioned this, by the way, but I'm a big fan. So this is great. You should sponsor your podcast. (laughs) Yes. And speaking of podcast sponsorships, I have a podcast sponsor. And so I do believe that this is the next level of thinking. Like, what can we sponsor? Where can we be more niche? And I think this works in many areas. It works for podcasting. It works for newsletters. It works for like different influencers on social media, like being more niche is a good thing. So who can we find? And the fact that it's like, maybe this person, this, this gives me more confidence because I have a newsletter and I have like maybe 500 subscribers, but the open rate is high, right? And so you don't need to have 20,000 subscribers or sponsor someone's newsletter that has that many if who you're going after is exactly the person you need and, and the readers love them and the open rate is high and you're going to be like the eyeballs are going to be on you of the people that are in your target audience. I think that the niche thing, it works in marketing. I fully believe. So hot tip, hot tip. If somebody's listening and they're interested in this, they're, I just discovered this new platform, which I love, called Swapstack. And Swapstack is a marketplace for people to advertise in Substack newsletters. So you go in and you can search and find different Substacks and they broker those advertiser relationships right through the platform. So also if you have a Substack and you're writing, you can list your newsletter there and gain visibility in front of potential advertisers. So I'm using that now and testing it out and it's you use it at no cost and you only pay if you find a newsletter that you wanna sponsor. Well, I will include a link to that. That is super helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk about, I mean, this has been such a fruitful conversation and I didn't expect otherwise. What are your goals for this year? What are some personal goals? What are some of your professional goals? What are you hoping for? I think the big thing for me is I have been in a number of Series A startups. And the reason I came to Tradeswell is that the CEO here is somebody who's really accomplished. His name is Paul Palmieri. He founded a company called Millennial Media, which IPO'd and sold to AOL eventually. And he's truly scaled businesses and is very savvy. And I wanted to come someplace where I could really go from being that startup marketing leader to being the scale-up marketing leader and to learn from somebody who's done it. And I think coupled with that, like he sees marketing the way I do and has really bought into my vision. And so my goal is really the company's goal. It's to help the company get where it needs to get and to be the marketing leader who 
is able to make that to cross the chasm, if you will, from heading up a startup marketing team to heading up a much larger marketing team and being a part of that success story. I'm rooting for you, Kathleen. I think it's great. (laughs) And I think that it's also hard startups just in general, being a marketing leader within a startup, it's so hard because you're, it's risky, right? You're not in an established place. You've got leadership team. Some of them believe in this like marketing mentality, right? Marketing mindset. And some of them don't. I think like my experience has been sales, totally get it. Marketing, not so much. There's a lot of shifts. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of under, like, what is marketing? Everybody thinks that they can be a marketer, right? There's all of that baggage. And so it's hard, I think, especially at Series A startups. So I'm rooting for you and you will cross the chasm and you will have the experience. And then you're going to come back on the show and you're going to share it with us if you agree. (laughs) Oh, thank you. That's so sweet, Anna. I appreciate you having me on and being in the cheering squad. Well, thank you, Kathleen, for taking the time today. And if anybody wants to reach out to Kathleen, she's on LinkedIn, Kathleen Slattery Booth. And if you want to find out more about Tradeswell, you can go to tradeswell.com and I'll be watching your journey. Thank you again. This is awesome. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Modern Startup Marketing. New episodes are dropping weekly, so make sure you're following wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me on LinkedIn, search for Anna Firminov, or go to my website, firminovmarketing.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.